Welcome to season three of Who Your People Is. I am elated. I feel so privileged, inspired, and overjoyed by the fact that this season I am joined by people that I have an extremely long history of collaborating with. And this season, they are helping me to understand, to hear, to move forward with a piece that I am currently in process with. The piece is called Bull Jean and Dem Day Back Dreamin'. And we are taking a five minute standalone excerpt from that. And we gonna work that work y'all. So we couldn't be in the room all together, but one at a time, each guest is layering in their power, their brilliance, their love, their spirit, their knowings. And we're going to have a conversation and then we're going to share those tracks as the piece becomes itself. I'm extremely grateful to our sponsor this season, Alice Wilder who is an audio engineer who is helping us keep this together and keeping it sounding right. So grab your wig, your coffee, your chair on the porch, whatever it is, clutch your pearls, get ready. Here we go. Monkwe Ndosi, who your people is? Hi! (laughs) Oh, who my people is? Who isn't my people? No, my people is actually my people is is fierce makers, mm, reworkers, healers, mm, those who push themselves to make in the uncomfortable places and populate the uneasy textures and terrains. Um, the connectors who are willing to be compassionately uncomfortable. Yes. And who reach back to what may have been neglected or debased or uh, um, overlooked and bring, bring back the jewels, um, bring forth the gems and the jewels. Um, that actually are our foundation, um, that sometimes in the midst of these new worlds, um, we can dismiss with and, and see them not through our own eyes or through our ancestors' eyes, or see them through somebody else's eyes, so. And how do you describe what a, someone who reworks is? Mm. Um, I would say someone who, I don't know, feels someplace in their body, in their gut, that they don't fit into a frame, into a box, into an idea, into a 
a story of how something is, of how it is, whatever that it is. And instead of succumbing to that box or that shape that doesn't, isn't comfortable, they listen to that discomfort and follow it instead of trying to mask it, instead of trying to re-teach it. I mean, they may go through periods of trying to teach it and it just don't work. <laughs> so eventually to follow it and then to step back and step back and step back and ask the questions. Okay, what, what is uncomfortable about this? Okay, why is this uncomfortable? Okay, so whose comfort is this for? Okay, so when was this framework set up? Okay, who was this framework set up for? Okay, what kinds of beliefs about the universe set us in motion? Okay, what, what, what kind of language, what kind of assumptions are inside of the language that I'm using to even speak about what it is? Um, so it's like people who are, are hungry for nuance um, and who don't necessarily hold fast to a big T truth, like a, a truth that is fixed, Mm. But understand that we're in the river, you know, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also people who know that we are existing in a period of time, but we're in this river, you know, we're in this river, in this ocean, and that the people before us were just as brilliant as we are now. And the people after us will be just as brilliant as we are now and that we are brilliant. Um, And so understand that the frameworks that we're dealing with right now are still fluid frameworks, you know, that humans have made and unmade and remade and fucked up, messed up. That's right. You know? Yeah. And come back and tried it again. And that inside of all of that, sometimes spirit, sometimes the earth will come through and just wipe it all away. Mm. And then we start again um, from our dreams and from our body memories, you know, Ooh, God. and from our relationships too. Right. right. And so right. it's like, I think the other piece of it is it's like, I've been trying to think about, you know, inside of the time we, we are in where there's so much in terms of uprising, the uprisings are so much and people pushing and talking about and getting very popular to be talking about revolution. And then be, having known enough about history to understand that sometimes the people who are pushing for revolution then become the very despots, the very, you know, oppressors that they seek to um, push away or to overcome. And that we have this desire to make something fixed, to have sometimes sometimes some people want to know where they're going before they start, you know. And so I've been thinking about these things and being like, okay, so how is it that we chart the steps knowing when we don't really know where we're going? And so I've been working with this idea of a homing beacon, you know of being in right relationship and that feeling, noticing that feeling in your body, knowing that feeling of being in right relationship or that feeling when you're feeling um, 
just right or when you're feeling enraptured by your life or you're feeling so proud of your people or your, you know, the position that you, that you found yourself in or the work that you're doing or the people, you know, the people that you're with or the experience that you're having and to soak into that, mm-hmm. to notice when you're having that moment so, so that you root it in your spirit as something to return to. Mm. So then you know, then it can help you discern a direction. It can be a compass, then it becomes a compass and a homing beacon. Mm. Like I take this step, does this step feel like that? Or like we're getting to that? Oh yes, and we keep going with that step. Oh yes, we stay in this relationship. Oh yes, we stay in this situation. If it feels like it's very much not that or the opposite of that, oh, then we know that's not the direction to be going. So mm. it's like, how do we, how do we work in a, an emergent way toward a future that has never been made before, you know, oh and using that feeling inside of our bodies, that feeling from our past, from our experiences as this homing beacon or as this compass that can teach us. And then we don't have to, worry so much about what it looks like we can come from what it feels like and then maybe we can be more present with each other while we're in it mm. right mm-hmm. because the success is all of us is us here right with each other treating each other well that can be our success and then making then we can take a step then we don't have to like have everything figured out as we go we can just teach our babies to feel that and know that and then we keep going with that mm. and love each other in the process right so right. i've been working with it it's certainly still aspirational but i know that this is my aspiration <laughs> you know is to make more of that in the world oh my god that is so profound and so beautiful and so um divine I mean, you just said a lot of things. I know I will rewind and listen to that again. And <laughs> beautiful, again. beautiful, yeah. beautiful. Yeah. When you think, you know, you're in your spirit and your skin, you're holding this, you're aspiring towards this, you're moving and living this. How, how, can you just speak a little bit about your blood ancestors and how mm-hmm of that, your, your blood lineage and how any of that may or may not have informed this? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, um, I am a Tanza Sotana. I'm a Tanza Sotana, mm. um, born and raised in Minnesota. Uh, but my aunt, uh, with a patrilineal, um, history of uh from tanzania from east africa and from the northern part of tanzania uh, the arumeru region um my grandmother uh and the family home was in a place called magia chai um, my father was raised in another small village outside of arusha called poli and um my people were mountain farmers our mountain farmers Mm. in that way. So in the foothills of, of Mount Meru, um, there were 12 families that broke off from the Kichaga tribe and they moved from the base of the foothills of Kilimanjaro to the foothills of Mount Meru. 
and connected up with the Arusha Maasai people who were there as well um, and started to farm the, the mountains, started to farm on the mountains. Um, and so for me, The, you know, they definitely went through a whole lot in terms of colonialization. So that's this is one side, and I'm going to come back to them. And then my mother's side were the strivers, black strivers, black professionals. Like, we are going to make ourselves into something. We are going to be something. We are going to make the road. We're going to pull people up. We are going to pull ourselves up. You know, I have preachers and doctors and professionals and psychologists and teachers um, and those who would and the, the, the organizers, the ones who organize the people who are supposed to be leading, but who actually teach the leaders how to uh, and stay longer than sometimes the leaders stay. Um, um, reconstruction senators uh, on my mother's side, um, who she grew up in St. Louis, but I have a lot of people um, from the Chicago area, some people in Florida, some people in DC, some people in Detroit. Um, yeah, so we have sort of two sets of, of folks coming from those areas. Um, very hard workers all, uh, very hard workers all. Um, and, and ones with high expectations for themselves and their kin, certainly. Mm. Um, yeah, I think from my mom, my mother's side was definitely uh, an expectation of, of intelligence, uh, dignity, um, and, and, and work. Uh, and there's definitely work on both sides. Mm -hmm. uh, and from my father's side I think my father's side comes to me more in a lot in dreams I've been to Tanzania a few different times like the the image behind me is definitely from Tanzania not from the the area where my family is but um from the Bukoba area um uh but my my father's side I feel connected to the mountains through through my grandmother my great-grandmother um, my grandmother was a singer, mostly in church, um, and a lover of the flowers and the flowers that grew abundantly all by themselves. Um, and I also know that they were medicine women. Um, they would, because that's just how it was. Do you know what I'm saying? So there's a way in which Sometimes in this, when we're re, when we're reweaving our historical, our ancestral wisdoms together, we here may make a big deal out of it, but how that how it was, you yeah. know, your mother, your grandmother, you knew what you had to know, which medicines to go after, and so, you know, so they would engage with the forest, you know, with the mountain, with the mud, with the bird, with the animals in ways that were very um, everyday. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I, I take a lot from them as well as, you know, my grandmother, my great grandmother, when she passed, she came to me in a bird. You know what I mean? Like I saw, she, it was, I was in fifth grade and I remember there's a, a, a white pigeon that came and just sat in the windowsill and looked at me 
in my class. And I was just like, why is this bird here? That has never, ever happened before. And all I knew is when I looked at that bird, that my great grandmother was there talking to me. And then I came home and I knew she had passed. Mm. And so there's an aspect of um, astral travel. There's an aspect of that. uh, uh, There's so much on that we don't see about what we may from our vantage point in the United States or in sort of more industrialized countries. Um, just because we can't see it doesn't mean it was, it doesn't exist. You know, like we can't see the totality of their existence, the totality of the wisdom and the, intelligence that they worked with on a daily basis um, and the freedom that can come from a dirt floor Mm. and a home that you make from mud with your own hands Um, and that you sweep every day and that you shine and you polish um and it may, and that it's not it may not be available to us in this context in the you know industrialized countries, but I just always want people to look again at what we've been encouraged to see as less than right because often when they sit then they start to whatever people say is less than they're getting ready to steal. <laughs> You better say that. That is the fucking truth. You know what I'm saying? They get ready to steal. So I feel like that that could be another one of those places for us. Oh, somebody's saying that this is not good enough. Let me let me be curious about that now. Let me see what's there. Right. Somebody's getting ready to take advantage of or, 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 or take away, you know, so. Oh, Lord. Um, and then some of it, too, is the instrumentation and the connection and the listening to the sounds of the birds, the sounds of the forest, the sounds of the mountain. My grandmother's house, um, when I last was able to be there, she was no longer embodied at that moment. But I realized when I was there that she was on kind of the house was on a hill that my father built for her. And there was a bowl. And across that bowl, I could hear people talking way far away. So it was, it felt like a speaker, you know, like I was listening to the whole village from that, from that point of view, from that audio auditory vantage point. Mm. Um, And then the, the, just the way that the, the birds can speak and the water can speak and the rain can speak and their voices are not muted and they're not as concerned with being um, eaten or captured so that they will sing. And I think given how I sing and the fact that I love to sing with all the beings of the earth, that that definitely comes, uh, comes from them. Wow. Did you at a young age know, cause you definitely are a medicine woman. You're, you're a medicine woman in uh, as an artist, uh, literally in terms of your knowledge of plants and how you bring communities together and open and hold space, like just in every way of your being, you are. 
But did you, when did you, when did you recognize that in yourself? When did, when did you have a inner push to go towards that? both in terms of the literal plant medicine and as a, as an artist with your mm-hmm, mm-hmm. artistry, particularly. Yeah. I think that as when I was in my twenties, I was still filled with a lot of rage at the world, which I still have sometimes a lot of rage at the world. I had rage against, you know, uh, different religions that have been used to uh, colonize folks. And I've been rage against inequality that exists and still exists in the world. I rage against the violence that we take out upon each other and how that violence is. And the, just the setup of the, of the system that we are in. And I think at one point I figured out that I had to choose to either be something that would hasten the demise of the framework that we have been in, or I had to decide to look for what we need on the other side and build toward what we want to live and who we want to be and what we will need to know on the other side. And so for me, that was the point, literally. Like I was deciding, am I gonna be a bomb? Or am I going to be a bomb? Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. And I decided I needed to have, I wanted to have a life. Yeah. I wanted to live a life. I wanted to live life. So while I didn't want to accept the frames as they are, you know, accept the values that I was being told about, um, I, I wanted to work toward what was next, what would come next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Got you. Got you. How was that received on your mom's side? Like that side of the family where it's like, we're going to be some, we're going to, we got, you know. The- yeah. I mean, I think I've always been a strange child when it comes to my, that side of the family. Definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think I've definitely always been a little odd uh, to them, but that was okay. That mm-hmm. was okay. And I think, um, as we move along, I still think I still am that strange child, mm-hmm. you know, um, to them. Um, but as we move along, people mellow into, um, what they see the who they see that you are, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Got, got yeah. Who they see that you are and, and you start to, as you start to blossom, people start to support what they see, the flower that they see, you know, there's less about who they want you to be mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and more about um, who you are. Yeah, I have found that to be true too. And that I've found that like, even if they didn't express it in the kindest, best way, <laughs> what they really want it was for me to be okay. Yeah, yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Where did you... How did you move towards singing and performing? Like, like, where'd you get training from hmm. the opportunity to express in that way? Yeah, I think I've always, I think I've always been a creative person. I think the the challenge has been accepting it in myself. Mm-hmm. You know, um, both from the professional side and my mom's side and the you know, more immigrant. You know, my father had a real push to 
make money, to make money from this place so that we could send it back to save the family and these kinds of things. And so being an artist was not at the top of his list as to what would make that happen. And so I think my creativeness always pushed up against that feeling. And so the way that I did it as my sort of quietly stubborn self was that it has to be worth it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I didn't give it up, but I had, and sometimes I loaded it too much with that, you know, mm-hmm. like too much that it has to do a, you know, it has to help save the world and help do this and help do that and help do that. So I think there are ways in which um, I put too much weight on, on which on my music, on my creativity, which I think slowed some things down. Um, mm-hmm. Um, you know, but that also brings some an experience that I've had that I value now as well. In that, I always wanted the creativity to be woven with something, woven with purpose, woven with um, inquiry, woven with um, engagement, with big questions, mm-hmm. um, with connection between our small individual selves and stories, our individual stories and the stories of our people and the stories of our society and the stories of our histories. I always wanted those kind of weavings to be there inside of the the work that I do. Um, But I loved singing since I was a little, little person. Uh, And I loved to communicate with animals um, as well. So I would imitate animals all the time um, and I, you know, I, I sang in, in choir in, at school. Um, I had an early voice teacher who was an opera teacher, Oksana Brin, who was, um, from the Ukraine, who was an opera singer who came here and, and taught. And then, um, and yeah, I was mostly in theater as a junior high and high school kid. Um, and then in some theaters as well, when I was in school, the school that I, the college that I went to didn't really have a theater department. So it was all student run plays and things, but I was in musicals and theaters and, and then, and then getting out of school, I just wanted to be in, I was always just a performer. I wanted to be in performance and I, you know, my initially it was theater. I was interested in theater and dance. And so I ended up back in the Twin Cities after college, um, interning for a production at the Guthrie Theater, um, which uh, Bill T. Jones was directing Dream on Monkey Mountain by wow. Derek Walcott. Wow. I got to be the directing intern on that. And that was a time and a place in which I met a whole lot of different artists um, during that time in the mid, early to mid 90s, really. And I got to watch the interest because I was interested in the intersection of dance and theater at that moment. Um, and out of that, I learned about Penumbra and I met folks like Baraka de Soleil and I met Daniel and I met folks at the Walker Arts Center and just started to do little. And, um, um, and, and I met uh, like Carolyn Holbrook, started to do just small performance, performance moments. Um, and so basically in my 20s, I was just saying yes to all the art things. Mm-hmm. You know, I had my like temp job and I was just saying, yes, it's like, oh, OK, you want to come and perform this? Yes. I just said yes. I just said yes. Mm-hmm. Theater, if it was movement, if it was music, I just said yes and yes and yes. And then there was a, a moment when 
there was a Twin Cities Black Film Festival. And this was, I guess it was maybe 94, 95. And um, E.G. Bailey was and my good friend, Marae Regulus, were putting together something uh, for Nina Simone. It was a Nina Simone tribute. Um, and it was a combination of music and uh, her music, um, some groove music, some poetry. And that ended up turning into, actually wasn't part of the iteration that was for the Twin Cities Black Film Festival. But afterwards, the energy was so much there and they had one singer who didn't want to continue that they asked me to continue with them. And we ended up doing a, a making a group called Arcology, which was like three musicians and three sort of performer, theater, writer folks. Um, and we did like black movement poetry and our own poetry and grooved it out. And so I really started singing again through that in terms of singing out for people. Mm. Um, and, and then when that uh, stopped, I ended up um, living with or above uh, Douglas Ewart, who was the uh, uh, former chairperson of AACM, um, improviser, instrument builder, um, textile. He's a, he's a fabric worker, a painter and a composer and musician. And he, at that time I was sort of in between things and I was sort of beep, boop, boop, bop, beep, just sort of <laughs> up, up, heard me doing a little improv improvisation, uh, above him. And he crept up the back stairs. He was like, I hear you. And I was like, Oh no. <laughs> so this was like December 2000. He started bringing me to Chicago. Wow. Um, so before that, I was doing like um, cabaret, 15 minute pieces, things like that. Um, mostly in terms of theater and performance artwork. Um, I had been in and around Penumbra doing stage management in the back. I was in the back. I was in the front. I was on the stage. I was off the stage doing some producing. Um, I was connected up with um, Lori Carlos, who I very much was you know, impacted by and who's definitely one of my teachers, performance teachers. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, just someone who inspired both rigor and delight and refused to continue to exploit and flay open ourselves on stage. She didn't need it. We did, she was like, we don't need any more black people eviscerated mm. for public viewing. That's right. Yeah. So she put that in this like, nope, you will be respected. You will be paid. And you don't have to, you know, exploit your pain as the only way to make a living as a black artist. Mm. Um, yeah, so that had a profound impact on me. She had a profound, her work had a profound impact on me as well as how, just how visited she was and how much of spirit came through her and how she made new forms. She just, she just was a maker of new forms. Yeah. Um, yeah. So she definitely is one of my foundational teachers, uh, inspirers, mentors. Um, yeah, and then Douglas started to bring me to Chicago to meet with the AACM to play with folks from the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians, which is a 55-year-old 
African black diasporic music improvisation com composition organization. Sort of Laurie and Douglas or Laurie and the AACM are the sort of two, um, yeah, they're the two arms, they're the two roots of, of most of my tree. And then the rest of it is like nature and the earth and spirit, I don't know. So AACM, I got to, was so scared when I first went. I remember just being so scared and loving uh, being at the Velvet Lounge in and amongst this sort of, this dive bar with people from all over the world, black folk from all over the world coming through there, young people, old people, folks who were internationally acclaimed, the folks who were just starting out. It was Fred Anderson's Velvet Lounge. And that's where I learned how to lean into my creative musicianship. Mm -hmm. That's where I grew myself as a musician, as a creative musician, as a composer, um, where I started to hear an expanded palette of color, an expanded audio palette um, and work with that and work with what freedom means on stage sonically. And that I can agree and disagree on stage. And who did I think I was? And who, and, and you better think you are somebody all at the same time. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Oh my so Douglas God. introduced me to that world and I have never, yeah, I haven't looked back since. And do you think that that pushed you in an organic way towards the plants or was that, that your relationship with that medicine happening in a separate track? There was definitely a separate track. I mean, that, that medicine was from my daddy. Okay. Gotcha. Very much from my daddy. I was my father's weeder. My father, because he grew up in this place where the flowers were abundantly growing all through the mountains. Um, when he came to Minnesota and when my parents were able to get some a piece of land to themselves, or at least to lease that out <laughs> to themselves, he grew a garden. And from April to October, sometimes early November, if, the, if it was warm enough, he would be out there often every day, at least several times, uh, you know, he was a master gardener and he was mostly a flower gardener. So his flower garden had flowers that would bloom at every single period of the season. Mm. Um, and so especially on the weekends, I was his weeder. So I was the one who would come out and I would pull up the weeds. So he taught me how to harvest in that way. And so the plants that he had me pull up as weeds, I started to learn were actually medicine. Um, I, I was curious, right? You know, this was around the same time as I came back and, and worked, you know, on uh, Dream on Monkey Mountain. I had had, I was just really curious about what the expansive possibilities of, of healing were. Um, I was working at a coffee shop and kept having, I drank all the coffee I wanted, just coffee, coffee, coffee. And I started to have this acid stomach and I went to the doctor and the doctor was like, I can prescribe you this pill. And I was like, well, what if there wasn't a pill? What, is there something other than a pill? And they were like, well, you could stop drinking coffee and carbonated beverages. And I was like, aha. That was great. <laughs> and then just down the street, there was a co-op a co-op co and some other um, sort of a, uh, there's also a, a store that had mystical things and herbal things. And I got a book there um, that also expanded 
my understanding of what we're of healing possibilities and started to introduce me to plants. Mm -hmm. And then I also met a woman healer, Dr. Ada Belinda Dancing Lion, who now is a sister who was living in Minnesota at the time, a native and black sister who's, who I worked with for a period of time as a medicine worker, mm -hmm. um, who now lives uh, in the, in Georgia. And she also introduced me to one of her teachers, Susan Weed, who then I went and eventually ended up being an apprentice for uh, in upstate New York um, in 2002. Mm. So it, that the lineage and the lineage came through my father, and then I started to experiment. Like you could talk, ask Marie, I experimented on my friends with the plants. <laughs> I would see something in the book, and I would try this out, and I would try. That. They were like, "What are you doing?" So. I did a lot of personal experimentation um, in that way. Um, and so, yeah, so that grew and then, and then being able to, um, to apprentice uh, with Susan and, with, and to learn from other herbalists as well. Um, and so to be aware of this, these other uh, very traditional methods of healing ourselves and understanding as well as so many of the medicines that are, um, that are manufactured have their roots in these plants as well, this concentrated versions of them. Mm -hmm. So, but also then, you know, you know, I think I go and come in to also understand that, that every kind of medicine has its place, right? We just don't want to use allopathic medicine or cutting or those kind of things for everything. Right. You know, we actually have, a wide range of healing modalities to work with. Right. And so how do we educate ourselves to know that those exist and who, because a lot of times, you know, many of the healers are like artists. They are artists. Um, and so they won't necessarily be able to just use their modality in order to pay for their living. First of all, that's not really the way most humans, most peoples did that in the first place. Um, but that someone will be, you know, a musician and a healer or an artist and a Reiki master, or, um, you know, they'll be at the, at the drug store and they'll know how to do this, or they'll be at the spice store and they'll be a, a priestess and they'll, you know, so I was starting to see as I started to see myself, to start to be able to see other people in, in the how, and particularly Black people have always had to, you know, to mix it up. There's, there, we're all, we're, and how much learning we are often still in as we continue to grow and mature as, as, as beings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, I have to tell this story here. The first time I met you at least in my memory that I remember was 2002 when mm. you were in Conflama mm. um, mm. Lori Carlos directed um, a, a piece of mine named called uh, Conflama and you were full grown full like fully singular artist at mm. that time and mm. so I've since then had the great privilege of working with you a lot and witnessing you flourish even more into your 
singular voice, which it like encompasses everything that you've talked about, like the the earth and the air and the creatures of nature and old medicine and freedom. You know, it's like all of that. But the story I have to tell right now is in 2018, <laughs> the composer for my piece, that Black Mermaid Man Lady, the show. Yes, yes. Ebony Noel Golden directed, Alexis Pauline Gums was a dramaturg, and we had this amazing cast. Yes, yes. And one of the cast members, Florinda Bryant, on preview night, stepped up on a prop and her ankle twisted, and we had to stop um, the show. And you ran outside in back of the theater over by the trash can and pulled some medicine, some plant, and you wrapped it around Florinda's ankle. And then uh, Elizabeth McNally, our, our, our beloved stage manager, you know, mother of the house, got Florinda to the emergency room. And the Florinda said the doctors were like, what is this? Like, cause it had helped her so much yeah, by the time yeah. she got to them, they just wanted to know what that was. Like they didn't know what had happened. Yeah. And essentially we, we did the first week with the performers seated, but the second week we, they were back up on their feet and Florinda was up moving around. And mm -hmm. it was that medicine that you got over by the trash can yep. <laughs> wrapped yep. around the girl ankle. Yep. That was burdock. Yep. That was burdock. Okay. Arctium lapa. Yep. And it yeah. was over there growing by the trash can. Yep, we it was. I think this one was at the the base of the of the of the building that was next door, and uh, uh, the, I was. I just I keep on remembering my grandmother being able to like when a few times my my paternal grandmother, a few times I was able to be in her presence, her being able to like go into the forest and come back with something, mm. and make medicine from it, and that. Oh my God. I don't know, that always felt like power and freedom to me. And so I think that's the kind of an herbalist I want to be and I am. Um, a lot of it is first aid, a lot of it is aid when it's needed, but to be able to show that we are connected and we have medicine around us, to be able to inspire people to see what actually is here and to value what actually is here um, and that we are and we can be in relationship with the world in a really deep way and yeah. it can be very nourishing for us both yeah um, so I think that if we can inspire people to notice the medicine around them and the medicine in each other then we don't necessarily have to go anywhere and we may need to pollute it less. We will want to have less gas in the ground and more, I don't know, more water, you know, more water and more nourishment, more sun for each other. Mm, mm. That's beautiful. Yeah. How, how would you describe your artistry. I, like I, 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 as I sit here, I'm like, yeah, I feel like your work is so expansive and your, your 
vocality, your sound, your embodiment, the way what you're interested in that I've seen uh, mm-hmm. or heard you talk about in terms of making art is so expansive. I'm at a loss to describe it. And I'm wondering yeah. how you describe it. Yeah. I mean, I, I call myself a culture worker. Mm. Um, and then my primary medium is sound. Uh, so sound and composition, voice and composition. But that I also work to reclaim and, and to revisit um, and to reweave our ancestral technologies mm. of the earth, of spirit, and relationship. Um, so those are, that's, I guess, how I, I describe myself. And so inside of that, I definitely come from a performance base. Uh, I definitely come from a theatrical base in terms of how I move in, in sound as a musician. Um, I like to make experiences for people to have mm-hmm. and help people have experiences that impact how they see themselves and each other and the earth um, and to have, help people be curious about their ancestors and about, I don't know, believing more in ourselves and the earth and in the next hot thing you know mm-hmm. um yeah. not that hotness isn't a bad is is bad at all um i just don't want us to lose neglect some of what can be nourishing and sustaining for us mm-hmm. and um give us some depth um because then you know we see in the history of of where we are at like once we leave it alone somebody else as we said before will come up and and make it as though it was theirs all along. Right, right. And so I just want us to have the benefit of our histories and technologies. And, and, so, and then I think we need the ritual as well. Uh, right. We need our own practices. Right. So practice is my big thing right now. Got it. Got it. And sometimes you offer these uh, ways of communing, making, witnessing, practicing, ritualizing, uh, it's kind of like site-specific public engagement. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I've done some pieces that were really about listening to a neighborhood, listening to what's there and bringing music to support and encourage mm. the energy of what's there. So how, you know, some of it also has to do with like, how do we engage with, um, places that have been neglected or people who have been neglected um, from a place of nourishment first. Mm-hmm. So making experiences, bringing experiences for people to remember, sort of back to that homing beacon moment, making experiences of nourishment and joy for people to come back to. Uh, so that we know that we are worth it, that we that life has that in, has it. I mean, life will bring us plenty of pain. Yeah, <laughs> you know, without us even trying, because you know we we are biodegradable. <laughs> right. That's right. That's right. And so, 
Um, yeah, and, 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 you know, it's not about not examining the challenging things because that is also super necessary. Um, but we, pain is very bright, you know, and the moments that we can bring of nourishment and connection, helping people feel connected to each other, I think is one of the biggest things for me. Mm. Um, um, and that connection is being a way to, to help us navigate conflict, you know, help the relationship, making relationships worth going through some stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and coming out the other side. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so finding, finding those kind of ways. And then also, you know, the, the one of the last things that I have done was to, be working using theater practice and embodied practice to help people think about and work out and engage with each other around questions of public safety Mm. Um, in my neighborhood, um, which is still going through it um, after George Floyd's murder um, and the subsequent targeting of our neighborhood in a lot of different ways. And then the opening up of our neighborhood to things like sanctuary movements and then the closing down of that movement. Um, it's not closed down, but the sort of the ways in which um, the public space is going through its, um, what does it mean to offer space to unhoused people and to care for people? What does it actually mean to share space? What does it mean um, yeah, so how do we actually care for people and not disappear them when it's our, a lot of the times it's our system and our, when the fact that they are unhoused is an indicator that we, there's work to do, yeah. you know, there's change to be made. Yeah. And um, refusing to just make people disappear who you don't want to see. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, but so in, inside of that, myself and my colleague, uh, Griffin Jeffries, put together a series of gatherings um, that were really asking people different questions about safety and what does it mean to be safe. Mm-hmm. And we definitely had a, a different sets of of experiences with that there was one particular there was a BIPOC one and it was interesting to see that safety was different for for black and indigenous and brown folks inside of where we are um that had very much to do with a feeling of growing internal safety Mm. growing your internal spirit and your connection with spirit and your connection with ancestors Mm. couldn't just rely on the physical world Mm. and the physical formation of what exists right now because our lives have always been tenuous at best inside of them in terms of our value, in terms of when we could be targeted at any moment. And so safety for us is so much more generated from the inside than something that is and, and inside and then relationships in relationship with each other than it is about relying on someone else or relying on an authority to make us safe. 
Mm-hmm. And so those were some real distinctions. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's so important. Um, how, I, I mean, I could talk to you forever. <laughs> we'll bring it to a close in a moment, but I do have to ask in light of um, the murder of George Floyd and just, um, yeah, what, I can only imagine what the community, particularly the community of artists in Minneapolis have been through, but all the communities connected and inside of that. How is it feeling there now? I mean, the artists really stepped up and into it. And it's been a wide range of experience. I mean, one of the things that has happened, happened almost immediately during the fire, excuse me, mm-hmm. um, was the murals that were everywhere. There have been murals up and down Lake Street. There are murals all over George Floyd Square. And then the response of artists to step in um, one um, artist who is no longer with us, Amelia Brown, who was a woman who put together, who really was weaving emergency um, response and art together. Um, you know, she would set up um, boxes, again, sort of joy boxes, places where people can express their creativity. Mm-hmm. Along with Million Artists Movement, we were initially set up you know, spaces for people to be able to testify and speak to what they were seeing, speak to what they were feeling. Um, they also put together quilts, Million Artist Movement. Um, there was a great outpouring of a desire to help from all over the world. Um, and so this is one of those things which is, is, is interesting, you know, the, so there were organizations and artists, if you were able to capture that, there was a, a moment, a window where a lot of money was coming in to a few places, you yeah. know, to a few places. So that's has sort of set up some tippy kind of situations. And then it's certainly for black artists, you know, suddenly as you experience, we experience all over the place, people were, you know, organizations and corporations were trying to be anti-racist suddenly and were given these you know, statements about this and that. And so there has been a a period uh, where it seemed like folks wanted to hear more. This is, I'm talking about white institutions wanted to hear more, wanted to to do more. And we'll see how that pans out. Mm -hmm. We'll really see how that pans out. Of course, it's happened in the middle of the pandemic, right? So shows, you know, venues, all um, shut down, um, but artists also have been very creative. Um, so I think we're still in that place, just in some ways more so, where we are at risk, you know, we're insecure money wise. Um, and yeah, we still have to create. We are still creating. Um, there are plans that will be happening for the first anniversary 
There are a number of artists who stepped up and you know and have different kinds of conversations about what's going on. There are spaces that have been created were created outside for pop-up pieces to happen all throughout, you know, things that used to happen inside were definitely, you know, manifesting outside in different ways, you know, bare bones manifested all up and down Lake Street. Um, Pangea World Theaters had Lake Street stories up and down as well. You know, the True Art Speaks has had things online. But, you know, there's also been a lot of artists who've just gotten gone sort of not fallow but quiet for a moment mm-hmm. to do a lot of internal work as well um and then there's a lot who are just humping it trying to figure out some way to survive um yeah so it, it, i think it's definitely a place where we're not going back i think we all know this that we're not going back um we're having to reimagine ourselves re-envision, you know, what the next step is. But we also know and insist upon that art and creativity, I also feel like that artists have gotten smarter and more vigilant, um, more expressive of the fact that art isn't something to, um, to be pushed off or siloed into you know, one little area and to, and to to be used as only as window dressing or only as product, but that artists and particularly in the Twin Cities, there's a whole field of artists that really understand that artists are thought leaders, are creative strategists, are community engagers, are problem solvers. And that if you're going to revitalize anything, whether it's a neighborhood, a culture, a process you need to have artists involved from the beginning in order to do it in a way um, that will be sustainable for a long time and that's sustainable not just from our bellies but for our spirits and our motivations and our hopes and our engagements and our relationships mm-hmm. um, yeah so and there are just a lot of young artists who are out now that I just don't, I, I feel them. We've had so many, we've had so many venues closed um, that I am very curious as to what this next iteration of the world is going to be like, whether it's going to be a consolidation, so only the big places are going to be able to stay open, but also that, you know, who is going to bubble up? There are actually, there are new theaters that are bubbling up. Um, and I am excited to see what the young people will manifest and bring into existence. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I pray that there is from the divine, just a pouring out of replenishing for all mm-hmm. of you and resource and healing and divine direction. Um And I'm so grateful, you know, uh, Minneapolis is a place I consider home and you all are so brilliant in how you make community together. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just grateful for all that you have, you all have done to rise into this moment and lead in this moment. And so I just pray it back for you that you get some rest. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes. Punishment, Jesus. Yes, yes, we need it. Yes, we uh, need it. So in closing, I have two questions. Mm-hmm. Um, one is what are like thinking about your um, offering engagement, pouring into this Bull Jean Stories track? Like, like what bubbles up for you? What are you thinking about or what are you considering? Hmm. I... When I go into it, what I, and often this is the case with when I am a creative musician and with other instruments, because as a vocalist uh, improvising with other creative musicians, I think of myself as an instrument. And I usually go about it thinking about like, how, how can I be the glue? What is trying to emerge? And what does my instrument have to add that can help with that emergence. So, and in this case, since most of what's ha- going to happen is there now, it's a, it's a uh, delicate thinking about weaving and the, the transformation is happening so quickly that it's again coming in and out of the message and understanding like listening and listening and listening and listening and listening to the message and the moment that is trying to emerge and then without thinking too much helping be the group helping it to manifest so that's that's the way I I think about it I cannot wait to hear (laughs) what you do. And that was exactly why I asked you to be the last. I mean, it could have gone any way. Like I could have, I could see, actually, I could have asked you to be the first voice and to kind of Mm -hmm. set and open that and and make the spots for the glue. But I was, I was really excited and curious to ask you to be the last voice for that same reason. So I can't wait. And I just, (laughs) I'm so, oh God, I'm so grateful to journey with you to have had your sisterhood and your brilliance, your artistry, your spirit, your generosity, all these years. I want to work with you again. Yes. Yes. No, Jesus, hear me. I I love it. I love working with you. We definitely will. Cause I love working yeah. with you, with you because that's, I feel like your work is the place where my two, my rivers, my two performative artistic rivers come together in a way that I haven't experienced any other place. Cause I love working with the creative musicians. My theatrical person persona comes through in a sense there, but isn't really all there. And then when I'm working more straight theater, there's no, They don't have necessarily have room or the framework to be able to invite improvisation, to be able to invite creative texturing of of language and of voice in the way that is just how I do it. Um, And so working with you has been the place that both of those things have been united. So that always feels like a home place for me. Well, just know that I, my prayer and intention is to get real actual significant financial resource and just hand you a thing and just say, let's do this. 
That's what well, then it's already that. done. You've okay. already put it in the universe. It's done. That's it. That's it. It's done. We received right. that. Thank you. That's right. Well, the, the final question is um, for people that might be listening that are uh, early in the journey, that yeah. are trying, that are aspiring towards living huh. in their full um, soul's vision of themselves, huh. in their lives as artists, in their community making, you know, in their medicine uh, um, sharing and making cells. What would you say to someone that is early in the journey now that, you know, in this moment where you can look back and know things? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm. I mean, I think I would say invest in right relationship, seek the right relationship, seek the places that see you and the people that see you and be willing to see people and sometimes see people that you don't expect. Um, and be curious, enjoy, you know, don't take too seriously who you need to be, who you think you should be so that you can actually have a journey and experience and find out who you is. Cause I know mine went a few different places. I didn't exactly know what was going to happen, but, um, the journey brought me to who I am. And it wasn't deciding, pre-deciding on that, but it was deciding to be in a place that would accept me and be in places and with people who would accept me and encourage me um, and not just want me to fit into a box or fit into somebody else's idea of me. Um, yeah, so I think those are the two the two biggest things is to, and to make, to practice and to make, you know, just keep, keep at it. Um, and because every time you make a thing, you make windows and opportunities and you never know which relationships will blossom into long, long ones, long and fruitful ones, because, um, yeah, because especially with the way that industry is, the universe is, you know, being good to each other and being good to the people that you work with and, and, and wanting to be, them to be good to you will mean that relationships will circle back around and come and nourish you in ways that you didn't think that they would and that you will be a nourisher for other people in in ways when you are able to do the nourishing so mm, yeah. that's beautiful well we let those words take <laughs> their wings stay out there that's beautiful Mom, yes. Yossi, i love you thank you love you too thank you Front she off, look up. Tears rolling down the right side she face. She there. Who know how long? Came sharp and crunch. Shout out for the torches. Breathe. Breathe. The startle of they jump start moving back to breathing. Then old Caney 
sharp and crunch to get to tapping they can't tapping tapping they can't louder louder faster faster they tap until all the children Mina done passed her fan making on to come bursting up the road running and laughing and skipping and fan tumbling all the way Running and laughing and skipping and fanning and tumbling and twitching Skipping and fanning and tumbling and skipping and fanning and tumbling and skipping and tumbling and skipping and fanning and Tears rushing down both sides, she thinks. Bulgeen get to breathing faster. Tears rush harder. Oh, Kaylee, sharp and crunch, tapping, tapping, tapping faster. The children they skipping and laughing and fanning and tumbling. They circle till. Butterflies and birds join up and the trees lean and thunder bulging's way and the sky open and out fly angels with fins and black, black skin and long, long wings turn around pouring out all over up and down the road and back singing Bulgeen open she eyes, find Bulgeen's son, man boy Junior, laying in front yard next to she. Together they look up, free, smile, 
Stand. <laughs> Bulging Sun, Man Boy Junior, grab Bulging Hand. Walk she back on into the house, into she day. Pain. Tears. She knew. She knew.